My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers, to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of Jamie Snow. Jamie is now sitting behind bars at the Stateville Correctional Facility in Joliet, Illinois, a maximum security prison. March 31st, 1991, Easter Sunday. 18-year-old Bill Little was shot dead while working at the Clark gas station in Bloomington, Illinois. Almost a decade later, despite no physical evidence, a solid alibi, and passing a lie detector test, Jamie Snow was arrested and convicted of the murder of Bill Little. Is Jamie Snow just another guy sitting in prison who claims he didn't do it, or was he railroaded? Jamie was sentenced to life without parole and has been in prison for almost 20 years. This case may leave some people wondering, did a family man take the fall for the fatal shot that killed a teenage boy? But recent investigations have shown that the witness testimony, the only evidence used to convict Jamie, was coerced and new leads turn up suspects who could be the real killer. So why is Jamie still in prison? And who did kill Bill Little? We'll get to that after this. So the first time I heard from Jamie, he emailed me the day before Easter Sunday. And he noted this because Easter Sunday is the day of the murder he was convicted of. He wrote, quote, I promise I'm not going to start sweating you with messages. I just get to feeling a little down on this day. Most of the time, in my heart of hearts, I believe one day I will get justice. I will feel the free air on my face again. But on Easter, it sucks every bit of hope I have in me out. Jamie went on to tell me what he remembers about the day nearly 30 years ago. Jamie seems to remember a lot. He even remembers what he was thinking during his trial. Quote, I remember sitting in trial and knew beyond all doubt that my lawyers were dropping the ball, but was still saying to myself, I'm good. There's no way they can find me guilty for this. I was at home clear across town when it happened. You've heard the saying about being in comfort and safety of your own home. That's the worst possible place you could be if you are the suspect of a crime. I'd have been better off out somewhere running the streets or in a bar. My first impression of Jamie was that he comes across as a really likable and even funny guy. And sometimes you don't always expect this when you're talking to someone who has spent a portion of their life in prison. How old are you now? Well, I I, I think I'm 54. I, uh, for the last, 
I don't know. It's been a, been a few years, but I, I get confused. I, am I 53 or am I 54? I'm somewhere around there. I'm too old for this, I can tell you that. For the record, he's 54. Jamie has been in Statesville Correctional Facility in Joliet, Illinois, about an hour outside of Chicago, for almost two decades. Jamie Snow grew up in a very religious Christian family, with three sisters and two stepsisters. He says his family was poor, but his mom did a good job of making sure they never went hungry or wore dirty clothes to school. He says they moved around a lot from the age of five to his teenage years. He remembers they would move a couple times a year. And he says his mom was doing the best she could with what she had. So it was good from what he remembers. And then things took a turn. My mom got sick and died when I was, you know, in my my early teens. Um, And I think that really uh, uh, threw me off. Uh, She was the glue that held my family together. When she died, we just all kind of sort of, you know, scattered to the wind. I started, uh, you know, getting in a, getting in a, a little bit of, a, uh, you know, trouble. And, uh, you know, my dad died when I was 20. So by the age of, you know, 21, I was, you know, basically on my own. Jamie says trying to make up for the loss of his family, he started a new one at a young age. I got married when I was 17. We had five kids together. Wow. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I've done a lot of thinking about this, you know, and uh, I think that early on I was plugging the holes uh, in, in my heart and, and in my soul with my kids, you know, from losing my mom and my dad. You know, I, I, I loved them. You know, and I still love my kids to death. I mean, they're, they've been the, the greatest joys of my life. Um, but, you know, there should be a law against 17-year-old kids having kids. <laughs> you know, because I, I wasn't prepared to be the father that I should have been. As Jamie mentioned, he would get in a bit of trouble. I was a juvenile delinquent until the age of about, you know, 24 or so. Jamie had a pretty lengthy rap sheet, predominantly burglaries and theft, and was quite familiar with the Bloomington law enforcement. You know, just petty, petty crime stuff, you know, but I, I, I guess when you really look at it, it's really not any of it's really petty. Definitely, it's definitely not petty to the people who I may have, you know, with my actions. A few months before the murder of Bill Little, Jamie had been arrested for armed robbery of another gas station. I did end up, you know, getting charged with an armed robbery in, uh, in, um, in April of 91. And uh, I think that is, was, you know, that was really the catalyst. I mean, that's what really, uh, that is what I think put me on their radar. When you've had run-ins with the cops enough, they get to know you, and that's often not a good thing. They can end up wanting to nail you for something to teach you a lesson. You know, I I had developed such a a bad reputation at the time that, you know, they might have had the, the, uh, the mindset of, well, you know, maybe he didn't do this or maybe he didn't do that, but he did this or he did that. You go ahead and go now? Yeah, I'm recording. Okay. I'm Bob Ruff, and I'm the host of the Truth and Justice podcast. 
From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm also the host of a recent Oxygen docuseries titled The Forgotten West Memphis Three, where I also served as an executive producer. I've been hosting the Truth and Justice podcast for just over five years now, and Jamie Snow's case was our season seven case. Bob and his team re-interviewed witnesses, poured through legal documents, and actually uncovered some new information that we'll talk about later. I spoke to Bob to help break down the case for me and the investigation that he did. It was Easter Sunday, 1991. 18-year-old Bill Little is working at the Clark gas station in Bloomington, Illinois. At 8.18 p.m., a silent alarm at the gas station is triggered. When police arrive, they discover Bill Little was shot and killed with a 38 Special. The murderer took off with $60 from the cash register. Everything that happened at the gas station happened relatively quickly, it seems like. You know, there were customers in and out throughout the evening. It was Easter Sunday, so it wasn't super busy. Uh, But, you know, we had a few witnesses that were in the station and left. One of those witnesses was Jerry Gutierrez. Gutierrez told police he went into the gas station around 8 p.m. to purchase gas, and he saw a man standing near Bill. The man was about six feet tall, with shoulder-length blonde hair, a mustache, a gold earring, a narrow face and nose, a leather motorcycle jacket, and a bloody cut across his chin. This becomes the working description of the shooter. Jamie, at this time, he looked like he belonged at a Metallica concert. His hair was long, shaggy, and kind of big in like a thrash metal band sort of way <laughs> you know no i, I wouldn't uh, I, I wouldn't uh, wouldn't argue with that i i actually had um people say that i looked back then that i looked like uh the singer for metallica so did you happen to listen to metallica at all uh, that's what i was just getting ready to tell you i, was, uh, I did not you know i I, I didn't uh, uh, listen to him back then. I, it took me a long time before I actually, uh, you know, started listening to their music and, and uh, actually liking it. I mean, you know, I was probably in my 30s before uh, I actually listened to their music and, and, and started to like it. You know that they played kind of a big role in the West Memphis Three case. Yeah. I believe that without the media involvement in the West Memphis Three's case, they you know, Damien Eccles would probably already have been executed. Well, I'll put out there that you're a fan. Maybe they'll get involved in your your case. And if there's scarring on his chin, it is not visible. He says he's never had an earring, and both of these I've never been able to contradict. Gutierrez's description of the offender, the one used from 1991 to 1993, doesn't match Jamie Snow. It's similar, but there's the earring, the scar, and... There's also the fact that Jamie's nose is thicker. I think one of the funniest things, and Bob's kind of joked, he was like, sorry, Jamie, you kind of have a fat nose. <laughs> Do I? I didn't. I, I, I never thought I did. You know, I, I never did, and I still don't, uh, uh, you know, feel like either of the composite drawings looked anything like me. The other witness was Danny Martinez. He told officers who arrived on the scene that he was putting air in his tires. He pulled up to the air pump at the gas station when he heard two shots and saw a man come running out of the station. He said the man was wearing a tan windbreaker zipped up to his neck. His hands were in his pockets. In December 1993, two years after the murder, he helped police come up with a new composite sketch 
The suspect was described by Martinez as 5 feet 8 inches tall with long brownish hair and stubble. No scar, no earring. The two witness composites are starkly different. But two years later, suddenly, the new sketch looks a lot more like Jamie Snow. Martinez would eventually become the state's star witness. At first, police don't have much to go on besides the Gutierrez description. They collected blood, fingerprints, bullets, and shoe prints, which appear to be converse, but nothing was matched. In the interim months before Jamie was homed in on, there were a ton of leads, and the police looked at multiple people. There were also two men who were picked out of mugshots by Martinez and Gutierrez. Yet, there are no police reports that these two men were ever interviewed or questioned about the murder. A few weeks later in April, Jamie was picked up for the armed robbery he mentioned. You know, the first thing they did was they walked up to me and they they looked at my chin for a scar and they looked at my ear to see if I had an, an earring, which I did not. Either one of them. And pretty quickly, the talks turned to Bill Little's murder. And then, you know, they they started, you know, and they, they started asking some questions about the uh, the Clark thing. But Jamie has an alibi. He says Easter Sunday, he was at his house celebrating with his wife, Tammy, and five kids. I can actually remember that day like it was uh, yesterday, to be honest with you. We got up that morning. I can remember the kids running around getting their... Um, you know, their Easter stuff. It was my son Junior's, uh, James Junior's first Easter where he was actually able to participate. You know, he just started walking. Chris and Jessica was up. They knew what was going on. You know, they were like five and six, so they they knew what was happening. You know, so they got up and they were immediately running around looking for their Easter baskets and their, you know, their eggs. And, and Junior was really didn't know what was going on, you know, so he was kind of like following them around. Jamie says the family always spent the holidays with Tammy's family. And something else that's important from that night? Uh, We didn't have a car at the time. I remember that night. Her mom had came over and asked us if we needed anything from the store. And, you know, we needed milk and and diapers or whatever, and and, uh, she left. And when she came back... uh, that's when she had said something about, you know, turn on the TV. You know, somebody somebody says, you know, there, there was a shooting at a gas station somewhere. Jamie's mother-in-law heard about the shooting when she was out getting the groceries for Jamie and Tammy. Her mom said, you know, turn the TV on. And, and we turned the TV on, and, and that's when we were, first time I've heard about it, it was, uh, you know, there was like a, on the news, there was a, a live shot, you know, of the gas station. Prosecutors allege that Jamie left the house that evening to commit the crime. Besides Jamie saying they didn't own a car at the time, Bob also went back and interviewed Jamie's now ex-wife, Tammy, to confirm his alibi. When I went and interviewed Jamie's ex-wife, she told me she's 100% certain. You know, and she's not a big fan of Jamie Snow by any means. You know, that's her ex, and they had a lot of issues. But she says she knows for a fact that Jamie was there with her on Easter Sunday and with the family. But prosecutors said she was misremembering. It must have been another Easter, they reasoned. And even though Jamie's finger and shoe prints didn't match the ones from the scene, Jamie was put in a lineup. Neither Gutierrez or Martinez picked Jamie from this line of six men. In fact, as I mentioned, Martinez picked two different men in the first lineup in July 1991. He still didn't pick Jamie in October 1991, 
nor did he in November 1993. And despite all of this, police kept coming back to Jamie Snow. Years go by as the police try to solve Bill Little's murder. Nothing Jamie does placates the detectives. He volunteers to take a polygraph, which police records show he passes, but he remains in their sights. He was continually cleared by the original investigating officer, Charlie Crow, because, you know, he had taken a polygraph and he passed it at one point. Um, I think he actually took two polygraphs and passed them. Uh, you know, he there was there was no evidence suggesting that he was actually there. But then, you know, new rumors would come up and, you know, the detectives would hear someone said they heard Jamie Snow confess to this crime. So they bring him back in and question him again and they'd end up clearing him again. Bob says once Charlie Crow, the original investigating officer who kept clearing Jamie, retires, that the new cold case squad takes over. And now from my experience, cold case squads can be amazing things. No one wants police to give up on their loved ones or these cases just because it wasn't easy to solve. But cold case squads can sometimes get a little overzealous, too. Cold case detectives often want to get their clearance rate or solve data high, which makes the departments look good. But some argue that this emphasizes competitiveness of the departments. And so in that case, it entices officers to appear to solve crimes to look good, but can lead to wrongful convictions in the hands of the wrong detectives. Crow is replaced by detectives Rick Barkas and Dan Katz, the new lead detectives. And now, years later, suddenly informants pointing to Jamie show up. And uh, once the cold case unit took over the case, uh, years later, they were determined to solve it to justify their existence. And there was uh, there seemed to be a problem with, uh, they had a problem with Jamie. And Jamie was an easy target. Jamie, in their mind, was expendable, as we see with many wrongful conviction cases. You know, the the underclass, underprivileged, uh, you know, in Jamie's case, you know, he was a white male, which puts him in a category where we don't see this as often with law enforcement uh, uh, abusing and manipulating them. But he was also, he was poor. He, 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 he didn't have money. And, you know, he lived in a trailer park, you know, which is, you know, rings true of so many different cases we've done where, the, where if someone is is poor, that the police tend to focus in on them and, the, and they will they will use them as scapegoats to close their cases because in their mind, they just don't matter. Nearly nine years after Bill Little's murder, a jailhouse informant is the one to bring Jamie down. Ed Palumbo told investigators if he gets a deal, he'll tell them who killed Bill Little. At the time, Palumbo was serving a 19-year sentence for residential burglary. Investigators agree, and Palumbo says it was Jamie Snow. So jailhouse informants are also a major red flag in any case. Often, people looking for lighter sentences ask for deals if they become an informant. They'll often say what a prosecutor wants to help themselves. And that's not just my opinion either. The Innocence Project estimates that 20% of the convictions overturned by DNA involved jailhouse informants. So it's super problematic. In fact, several states in recent years have toughened up rules surrounding using informants in trials. I mean, if you think about it, if you're in prison with years left on your sentence and a cop comes and says, hey, if Jamie Snow told you he killed someone, that'd be worth letting us know and we'd take years off your sentence. I mean, a lot of people would be tempted. 
Informants are so reliably unreliable that Bob looks for them when he's deciding on which cases to investigate. One of the red flags we look for are jailhouse snitches. It's actually on our submission form on our website, you know, when people are submitting cases to us. And in Jamie's case, the first thing I saw was there was no physical evidence. There were no eyewitnesses that it took years for the police to make an arrest. And when they did, it was all completely based on hearsay. And and then, you know, looking back onto the victim, it just seemed like the, the victim, Bill Little, who was murdered in the gas station, he had never received justice, and the police kind of pinned it on Jamie and moved on. Now with Ed Palumbo, the jailhouse informant, investigators bring back in star witness Danny Martinez to identify Jamie again. Four times he failed to do so, but now with Barkas and Katz as investigators, he suddenly picks out Jamie in the original lineup. Nine years later, the prosecutors had what they needed. I got arrested in September of 1999. If you would have told me uh, in 1999 that I was going to be uh, in prison for the next 20 years, I would have been like, no way, I can't do that. Jamie was actually arrested with his sister-in-law, the alleged co-conspirator Susan Claycomb. They were tried separately, and she was found not guilty. This is police tape from when Jamie was arrested. 002150, William Little Homicide. person being interviewed is Jamie Snow. The time is 12.50 a.m., September 29th, 1999. Are you going to take these off or not? I'm sorry? Yeah, you'll you, you be all right to take them off? Yeah, man, we're going to have to do. No problem. I will tell you, I wasn't scared. You know, I was livid. You know, I was pissed off. You know, I, I was angry. Jamie says he knew nothing about the case. So when the interrogators asked him to set things straight, he didn't know what to say. How do you clarify details of a crime that you know nothing about? And remember, at this point, Jamie's been asked again and again about the Easter Sunday that Bill Little died. He stood in lineups. He's taken polygraphs. He's cooperated for years. And when this arrest happens, you can hear just how harassed he feels, especially after he asked for a lawyer the interview should have been shut down immediately, but they kept going. I have to read you what is commonly referred to as your Miranda warnings because you are in custody. Jamie, I'd like to know what I'm being charged with first. Well, I will tell you since I'm done reading your Miranda warnings. Okay. Jamie, have these right to mind. Do you wish to talk to me about why you're here today? Well, yeah, I'd sure like to know what I've been arrested for. Okay, no problem. Jamie, we have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of William Little, who was the gas station attendant. But you're wrong. Well, and that's why I'm here. And that's why I'm here. Well, then there ain't nothing else to talk about, man. If you've got a warrant for my arrest for it, then that's it. Jamie, there's a lot to talk about. No, there's you, not. You know that. No, there's not. Let's talk about the lie detector test that I passed, man. Let's talk about that. Okay, let's talk, let's talk about that. Man. Yeah, let's okay. talk about it. How many lie detector tests did you take, man? I don't remember. You took two. Okay. okay. The first one was inconclusive. You know that. I know. I didn't so, know that. Okay. All right. I'll share with you. The second one. Uh, okay. Who told Let me you? Who told you that? What do you, what do you mean? You told who told me? Who told you you passed? Well, uh, the polygrapher told me I passed. Charlie Crow told me I passed. I mean, you know. Unfortunately, things go crazy, Jamie. You didn't really pass that test. Oh, really? Yeah. 
For an example, do you remember any questions they asked you? Of course. Well, I'm done. I, I, I don't want to talk anymore without an attorney, man. Okay. Well, that, that's your option. Okay. Yeah. If you don't want for me, then we'll go. I'll, I'll see you in court. Okay. okay. Jamie, before uh, this interview is terminated, because you're requesting an attorney, I just want to let you know the reason why we're here was to afford you the opportunity to explain what happened. Well, I'd like what afford me an opportunity. But you afford know, me an opportunity. Is that what you're saying? Afford me an opportunity. But since I don't even have a clue, man. I don't even know, and I think you know that really. I think you know that. Since you requested an attorney, we cannot talk to you or carry this interview any further. You know that. That's right. You know what your rights are. Right. You wasted your time. No, I don't think I wasted my time. Really. I do. You had a car blanche here to ask me anything you wanted to today. You had a car blanche to ask me anything. I would, I would have told you what the investigations revealed, what's happened. I would have told you anything. You, you, you asked one aspect of it. You asked one aspect of it. I couldn't do it because if, I don't know, but I don't think you were. That's good. I can't believe that, man. Well, why would I lie? Why would I have whatever, a reason to lie? Whatever. I'll so anyway, I can take a thousand oh, of them and I'll pass every one of them. Uh, so anyway, no, Jamie. Whatever. I'm done. What I want to tell you, I'll stay in town as long as you want me to. You to take some time to think about it. If you want to talk, you have to, to, you have to get a message to, to me. There, there, there's nothing to think about. I don't know anything about it, man. I didn't have anything to do with it. What do you want me to say? To me, the, you know, when I was listening to the interview over and over again and doing a statement analysis on it, I, one thing is for sure, Jamie Snow is giving every indication of veracity that he is telling the truth. And, you know, he, he's even emotionally he's reacting. You can hear him. I actually love that interview. It's one of my favorite police interviews to listen to because you can hear Jamie just just adamant. That, you know, the part that we use in our intro was when they say, oh, you're under arrest for the murder of Bill Little. And he says, well, you're wrong. He's very confident in stating that, you know, he's not trying to twist anything. He, but at the same time, you can hear the police slowly trying to manipulate and twist Jamie. And that was another one of the red flags early on in the investigation was if they're so sure he did it and if they have enough evidence to arrest him, why are they trying to manipulate him why are they trying to get him to keep answering questions without a lawyer why are they trying to you know, they bring the da in and and have her talk to him and they're trying to twist him and turn him and it, it becomes very apparent that at least i believe they knew they did not have a strong case and that's best case scenario in my personal opinion i think they knew damn well they had the wrong person so if jamie snow didn't kill bill little who did that's coming up. When Jamie was arrested, he was actually living in Florida. He had moved down there with his whole family and says he was doing great. Finally out of the trailer park in small town Bloomington with a job doing manual labor as a tree trimmer. He says he was done with stealing, done with looking over his shoulder. He liked being a regular citizen. The St. Pete, Clearwater, Tampa area. Oh, that's a nice area. Oh, I loved it. It, it, it was the... Oh my God, I loved it so much. You know, I tell I tell people this all the time, Maggie. The people in Florida got to see the real me. And who is that? Who is the real you? I'm a good guy. You know, I'm a good father. You know, I'm 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 a I'm I'm a hard worker. I'm trustworthy. I'm 
you know, I I had people down there who would go on vacation and give me the keys to their homes and their their equipment and, you know, would have me, you know, coming in and feeding their dogs and, and going out and doing jobs for them. He felt like he finally found his footing. He wasn't an angry young man trying to fill this hole inside of him anymore. They got to see the... The, the, the real me, who, who I really was at, at, at my at my core, not you know, I, not to sound uh, you know, try to sound cheesy or anything, but you know, I I was a good guy, you know, I was a good person. I think if you were to contact and ask any of the people who knew me uh, and dealt with me down there, I think that uh, you know, you'll get the same from them. Listen, when they arrested me, I was doing the best I had ever done in my entire life. I mean, I had my life together. I had my own tree thing going on, you know. I was just, I was on top of the world, you know. I had it figured out, you know. And uh, they came in. You have one minute left. They came in and just destroyed that. Jamie has spent almost 20 years in prison for a crime he has always insisted he did not commit. He tries to maintain a relationship with his kids as best he can. The one thing he told me is his greatest achievement. Do they visit you? Yeah, 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 yeah. They, 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 they come when they can. You know, I mean, they're, they're growing up now. You know, they're growing up. They've got their own lives. They've got jobs. They've got kids. They're, you know, they've, they're also struggling themselves. Uh, some of them are having their own struggles. So, yeah, you know, they... They do what they can when they can, and, and you know, that's, that's always good enough for me. I asked Jamie's supporters what they think led to his conviction, and they've got a lot to say. For starters, Bob says the witness statements are a problem. Well, there was 100% witness coercion. There are multiple affidavits out there from other witnesses who said that the police coerced them into testifying, either by offering them a deal or threatening them, depending on which type of leverage they had over them. Uh, so, th- you know, that that's how the conviction happened. Bob even went back and spoke to Ed Palumbo, the jailhouse informant. Who told us the police threatened him with more time uh, in prison if he didn't testify the way they wanted them to. Bob's investigation also found that Gutierrez may not have been at the gas station at the time he thought he was. Gutierrez, remember, he had the original description of the shooter that did not match Jamie. Now, this gets confusing, so bear with me. In 1991, Gutierrez told the police he bought $3 of gas around 8 p.m. Based on that, police figured he must have seen the killer, and they circulated his composite. Remember, it was the first one that went out. Eight years after the crime, in 1999, they finally checked the sales records and found that a $3 sale of gas had been made, but it was around 7 p.m., not eight. This gave investigators an opportunity to say, oh, wait, our witness was wrong. He wasn't at the station at the time of the murder, and that's why he can't identify Jamie in a lineup. Remember, Gutierrez was never able to identify Jamie. So once Gutierrez was discredited, Martinez, the other person who says he was at the gas station, became the star witness. And then he finally identified Jamie, sealing Jamie's fate. I think the needed Gutierrez to be there at seven o'clock. It, 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 if he was there, if, if, if he was there at eight o'clock, it, it just, 
it destroys the uh, the identification by Danny Martinez. So I think that's what it was. Bob, through his investigation, only found that one $3 sales receipt, and he thinks Gutierrez had probably been at the station an hour earlier than he originally thought. And therefore, he saw a completely different guy unrelated to Jamie's case. But Jamie's team has a different theory. They think Gutierrez was right in his initial statement that he was there around 8 p.m., they base this off the fact that Bill Little's friends say they were in the gas station with Bill up until about 7 p.m., and Bill seemed fine. He made no mention of being robbed, which, if it was Gutierrez with a $3 purchase right before 7, would have happened while they were there. That means that the robbery did happen closer to 8 p.m. They think that Bill didn't ring up this $3 charge because he was in the middle of being robbed, so it wasn't listed which means that the 7 p.m. gas purchase is a separate $3 gas purchase. And if that's the case, then Gutierrez had to see the incident around 8 p.m. And like I said, this is really confusing, and it's tough to know which theory is right nearly 20 years later, but that's exactly why police investigations need to be exhaustive in the first place. You know, people's memory may get better at the time than it is years later, you know? But... Everyone agrees one thing is clear. Whoever Gutierrez did see, it was not Jamie Snow. There's another issue with Jamie's case, too. His lawyer actually wound up being disbarred for dishonesty, deceit, financial exploitation, and theft of his clients. It was also reported that he admitted to having a mental illness, was an alcoholic, and had a gambling addiction and in the case of Jamie, he was not prepared for trial and had only a surface-level understanding of the case. And if that weren't enough, the prosecutor in Jamie's case was Charles Renard. Renard was getting ready to run for a seat on the judge's bench and needed a big headline-grabbing case to seal his election. Bill Little's murder, which was going on a decade unsolved, was perfect. The murder was big news when it happened, considering it was one of the only murders at the time, and the victim was so young. Bill's mother, Brenda Little, kept the case alive for years. She called the papers every year on the anniversary of the murder, as well as on Bill's birthday. She had flyers made and distributed, and constantly called the police. Having this high-profile murder unsolved did not look good. So, this was the case Renard was going to solve. Ed Palumbo, the jailhouse informant, wrote in his recantment affidavit, quote, After I testified, Charles Renard told me that Jamie Snow didn't do this. Someone else had. But since they couldn't get that other person, Jamie Snow would have to do. And there are multiple cases, just like Jamie's, that Renard had under his belt, where it was later found out that he put innocent people in prison. Alan Beeman was exonerated of murder, and Eric Drew had his murder conviction overturned. Alan Beeman's lawsuit against Reynard states Reynard and law enforcement conspired to blame Beeman for the crime despite overwhelming evidence that not only substantiated his innocence, but implicated another suspect. In the case of Eric Drew, Detective Katz also worked that case. Allegedly, the prosecutor under Reynard hid evidence of paying a witness to testify. Renard was elected to the judge bench right after Jamie's conviction, and he retired in 2015. 
in his investigation, Bob also discovered that the police never did their due diligence in looking into Jamie's alibi, that he was home with his family celebrating Easter at the time of Bill Little's murder, and that he never left the house. And then what the police never did, what I did, is we started breaking down where they, you know, we looked at times when Jamie was in jail, when they lived in Florida. And what we what we were able to determine was there was only one Easter where they were actually living in Bloomington at that trailer park. And that's so, you know, she, you know, the, the people would question when you're saying you remember him being there that Easter, you know, it was years later, it could have been another Easter. But she remembers them leaving their trailer, going down to her parents' trailer having Easter Sunday dinner, going back to their house, all sitting together at, the, at, at their house for the rest of the evening. Jamie never left. In fact, they didn't even have a car. And what we determined through the interview process that I did with her was that could have only happened that Easter, the, the, the year, the Easter, the day that Bill Little was murdered, because that was the only time that they lived in that trailer park in Bloomington at, during Easter. Even with all of this, Jamie has lost every appeal he's filed. But there's still some hope. Bob and his web sleuths went back and reinvestigated the case from scratch and found other evidence that could help Jamie. For example, early in the investigation, a tip comes into the police department from a woman who says her husband killed Bill Little. This is where the Jeffs come in, as Bob calls them in his podcast. Two men named Jeff were said to have killed Bill Little. So what happens is in two different tips, one is Jeff Miller's wife tells police that her husband did it. Point blank, she tells them her husband killed Bill Little and he did it with another guy. She said with Jeff Durbin. And then the police look into, they go meet with Jeff Miller and they write on a report, well, he's only five foot six and 125 pounds. He doesn't fit the description given by Gutierrez. Remember, the Gutierrez description says the perp was six feet. So he was cleared. And then uh, a couple years later, 18 months later, another tip comes in by a guy who says that he talked to Jeff Durbin, who said, who told him that he was the driver for the murder at the Clark station and he did it with another guy. So you have two different independent tips that come in indicating that these two guys were the trigger man and the getaway driver. And they were ruled out because they didn't fit Gutierrez's description. The police threw out both the Jeffs as suspects because they didn't fit the Gutierrez description, the first working description of the suspect. But remember, Gutierrez's description is questionable at best. Bob then gets another tip that points in the direction of Jeff Durbin. Now, Bob is not saying the Jeffs are guilty, to be clear, but he thinks the tips about them show there are other suspects worth pursuing. We kind of ended our investigation with, this is the direction I would continue to look if I were investigating this. We pass that on to Jamie's attorneys, and hopefully they can get law enforcement to do that. Jamie is currently represented by the University of Chicago's Exoneration Project, and they are diligently looking into these leads, including a new one that came up after the podcast. Though this last one is so new, they won't say much about it. It's the sort of thing that if it's true, you know, if it's true, the next time you interview me, it might be uh, in the park somewhere. 
Jamie's lawyers are also petitioning for DNA testing of crime scene evidence, including the fingerprints, in hopes of getting touch DNA off of them. But the state continues to deny motions for testing of all the physical evidence. Jamie's advocate, Tammy Alexander, also has a lawsuit pending against the county in hopes of finding more unreleased information in Jamie's case. In the meantime, Jamie remains in prison, where he works seven days a week trying to stay busy. That gets me out of my cell. It gets me a shower every day. It keeps me uh, focused. You know, fighting for my freedom is what keeps me going. You know, getting the story out about my case as far as we can, you know. And because and I, you know, I tell everybody, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm going to convince the world that I didn't do this if I have to do it one person at a time, you know. And, and that's what we've been doing. So, you know, I mean, just, I tell everybody, you know, it's a, uh, It's a marathon, it's not a sprint, you know? Jamie now has his own podcast. It's from his perspective, and it's very in-depth. It's called The Snow Files, and you can find it on Jamie's website, freejamiesnow.com, as well as a change.org petition asking the county's state's attorney for DNA testing of the evidence. Jamie's team has almost 67,000 signatures, and they would like to have 75,000 so they can do an on-site petition delivery in the spring. Jamie's team is also doing a message in a bottle campaign asking specific TV producers to take a closer look into Jamie's case. This is actually how they got Bob's attention, and they'd like you to help. So again, go to his website for this information. There is also a $10,000 reward for information leading to the exoneration or new trial for Jamie Snow. Any tips can be sent to tips at freejamiesnow.com. And I want to thank Tammy Alexander, Jamie's longtime advocate, for her help with this episode. She also helps Jamie make the snow files. You can also find links to Jamie's website, the DNA testing petition, and information for the reward on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. If you like this show, please, please, please rate and review. It takes two seconds. And the more people that do this, the higher the show will get on the charts and the more likely it is that the word will get out and the right people will hear these stories. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessednetwork.com dot com.